HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This is Jenna Liute, host of Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for four years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important conversations from food industry experts about the issues that shape our everyday experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Eating Matters in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Lee Ute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am so excited to be joined in the studio by Alex Gillette, CEO and co-founder of How Good, a company that identifies the producers that are making environmentally friendly and socially responsible food, helping all of us make more informed decisions. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I understand this is not your first time at Roberta's. You've been here many times in the past. Yep. But one in particular time that was very exciting that you want to tell me about? <laughs> uh, yeah, God, I mean, nine, ten years ago, um, I was, in addition to having started How Good at that time, uh, I was running a greenhouse on 26th and 10th. Okay. Um, so not here. Not here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, a the woman I was dating basically sent me a link from Craigslist that said, you know, it's one of the it was from the they have this list of like the most ridiculous Craigslist listings right now, mm-hmm. and some drunk guy had bought a thousand ladybugs. 
because he thought wow. they'd be amazing. But then they got to his house, and he, of course, had nothing to do with a thousand ladybugs. And he's like, they're all going to die. It's the middle of winter. I'm a terrible human being. And he had apparently done this on some drunk binge. Yeah, I was uh, like, I should stop drinking. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was an amazing post, actually. Like, you learned way too much about the guy. Um, uh, but my girlfriend was right on because I had a greenhouse and we had aphids. So I was like, great, I'll take this guy's ladybugs. But then when I actually saw a thousand, I was like, I cannot release a thousand. And so I, I don't even know what that looks like. It's it's like a mass of I mean, ladybugs are like the least creepy of bugs somehow. Totally. They're like friendly. Yeah. But when you make this many of them in a small space crawling over each other, right. it's pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like any the any amount of something like that even also, people you also, know <laughs> plastic bags should not move by themselves right oh. <laughs> <laughs> um but we released them in our in our um greenhouse and uh the vast majority of them but then i still had like 300 that i was like there's just too many i can't release all of these uh and i realized that they had just opened i think on top of this studio there used to be there's not anymore a, a greenhouse oh yeah an yeah. actually enclosed greenhouse and it turned out it was run by the same person who went to high school with me in uh in massachusetts totally randomly okay uh so i ran into her here at roberto's i was like i have 300 ladybugs hey. do you have aphids and she was like we have aphids <laughs> We have that problem too. Yes. And so we, we released those ladybugs here. And in fact, you know, my wife likes to say when she first met me, uh, that one of the things that endeared her to me was I stuck my hand in to pull out my cell phone. And when I pulled it out in the middle of winter, a little ladybug crawled off my thumb. It's good luck. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So you've, uh, so you're here in a different capacity this time. No ladybugs. Mm -hmm. No, sadly not. Uh, well, maybe next time. Yeah. Um, okay, so we, we digress. So so let's get back to the topic at hand. Yeah. <laughs> How good? Yes. Tell us, what's your elevator pitch? So we rate the environmental and social impact of food products, and now we've added in cosmetics and cleaning supplies as well. And the idea is to really be able to look at the complexity of something like the food system from every ingredient grown, the way they're processed, the impact they have on people, on animals, and on the planet. Um, and then be able to centralize both the data and the understanding. So. Um, you have so many people who are out there trying to gather this information on their own, mm -hmm. and it's so much work to do it well. Um, yeah, some so, would say impossible. Yes. <laughs> In fact, it's impossible for us as a company uh, to do it perfectly, right? And so when you're asking individuals, it just takes too much time. And so we wanted to simplify that problem. Um, and so you started, um, ooh, we have a special delivery of, of pizza here. Yes. This is the perks of... Uh, recording in person. It's so rare that I get to have people, have people come and hang out with me in this studio. So you can um, navigate the difficult waters of being interviewed while eating. I will, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll be interviewed as much as you want for Roberta's Pizza. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, so you, what, what are the ratings? You just listed a ton of categories. Yeah. How many categories in general do you typically rate a product on? So in food, we have 127. Uh, that, categories. Yeah. Or, or like... What we call attributes. So okay. like, um, you know, a very simple attribute that probably is actually one of the more readily available ones that people understand would be like USDA organic. Mm -hmm. So is it or is it not USDA organic? Okay. Right? It's yeah. a very simple attribute, but it tells you a lot about how the crop was grown, what different practices are allowed, all these different standards, right? So then when you do that for 127, and some of them are not what's on the pack, but actually, you know, what's going down 
on the ground at the farm, mm -hmm. um, the different practices, um, this different uh, processing, you start to get a full picture of the total impact. So 120, what are some of those? What are some examples? So USD organic, yes, no. Yes. And then, um, and then what? Like, I mean, the, the obvious one that most people would be aware of would be things like grass-fed, non-GMO, uh, whether or not it's fair trade, mm -hmm. um, right? Certified humane, all the different labels would be ones that people are very familiar with. Then when you get kind of what we call beyond the labels, you're starting to look at um, everything from uh, different types of ingredients that contain uh, you know, carcinogens, different types of pesticides, fertilizers. Uh, when you're looking at conventional, you start to look at things. A lot of things uh, get breaking down by region, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can say, hey, these are conventional tomatoes, but water usage matters a lot more in Florida than it does in California, or sorry, reverse, in California than it does in Florida, right? And so yeah. you want to be able to make sure that you're representing the true impact. Um, and so a water usage attribute uh, would be regionally based. Um, oh, wow. So each product, okay, so you're, so what you're rating on depends by product, obviously, yeah. um, and then and then by region. Yeah. And then, so not all products are rated on the same scale or have the no, same. And sometimes products get really complex when they're sourcing different things from different regions. Um, and, <laughs> and different times of the year, they can have different, different impacts. Um, okay. I, you know, we, people often say, how do you describe it simply to me? And it's like, well, it's a complex food system. We right. can't describe it simply, but that's what makes it accurate is we're willing to say every single ingredient grown in a different manner has a different impact in a different region. Right. Right. So you have to, what we call mapping the food system. Um, so you have to map all of those out and then you have to look for the data that actually allows you to show which one is being done and where it matters. How do you, how do you compare across products then if there's no kind of like standardized, you know, if you're, if you're so individualized in, in your ratings? You mean like some categories just wouldn't do well? Well, some categories might not do well. And then I, I guess like if you're getting very specific, um, like would you rate, rate like tomatoes from Mexico versus tomatoes from that are green grown in a greenhouse in Long Island. Like how yeah. do you kind of compare they're still tomatoes, but yeah. like and then like how can you if you're making a decision and and actually this is a question like is the point of the rating system and we'll talk more about what it actually looks like from the consumer's perspective, but if the point is like good bad yes no this one over that one, yeah. how do you make sure it's like an even kind of playing field? So what you're looking for is you're looking for key elements of differentiation. You know, if there's a 2% different carbon footprint, we don't honestly really care. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's not enough where if you create that change across the system, you're going to create sweeping changes, right? What we're looking for is practices that are above the standard that we can identify and say, yeah, this product is actually leading the way. And, you know, there is a confirmed body of science behind this that supports the fact that if you do this, it will improve the agricultural system, the people system, the animal system. Okay. Um, and you, how many products do you rank, do you rate right now? So we're a little over a million products ranked. Uh, we have the largest database in the world on food sustainability. That is amazing. <laughs> Thanks. That is really, I'm like, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that seems like a ton of work and research, a yeah. million products. A million products. And it's, you know, and I not like 
just, but it is specifically focused on environmental sustainability. Yeah. You, but you also have social... Environmental and social, yeah. So what are those... What are the, I should have probably started with this at the beginning. Like, what do those mean to, to, to how good? I mean, there's, you know, 40 million people living in slave-like conditions working, supporting the U.S. food system, right? The food that we eat. Uh, You're like, and, right? I'm like, no, I didn't know that, actually. I didn't really realize I mean, I, I don't think anyone who, like, if you said, hey, X ketchup has slave labor in it, no one who hears that is going to go and buy that. The problem is that there's so much distance. In this day and age? I don't know. <laughs> I, honestly, I might, like, impression, like, I have very little faith in humanity these days. But anyway, okay, so let's say that people are better than what I think they are sometimes. Most people wouldn't opt for that ketchup. One would hope. One would hope. Um, so there's there's a huge amount of uh, distance people have from their food. You know, it's not like it's not like they're walking past the farmer that they're going to buy their meat or their grain from, right? Um, and so, a lot of times, even the companies buying the products don't realize the companies they're buying them from, who are a supplier, who are buying them from, you know, fisheries in Thailand that are using this, you know, type of labor or that's one example. Um, you know, there was a big, amazing piece. If you want to read the details about it, uh, about uh, shrimp being bought in Thailand, um, mm -hmm. that can really give you an idea of how this sort of thing happens. Um, and fortunately, that's largely been cut out of the U.S. food system. But it, it was supplying a, the, a huge percentage of U.S. shrimp was being sourced via slave labor from Thailand, right? And so mm -hmm. how do you start to avoid that? Um, so for a product that, let's just say, theoretically, that... There was some shrimp that was environmentally perfectly sourced, but it had slave labor, mm -hmm. right? In our system, you just, it doesn't matter, right? That's a deal killer. You can't get a good rating. You can't combine those two, right? It's, it's a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker yeah. for a rating, right? Like you, you're just <laughs> below our standards, yeah. right? So we're not going to give you, yeah, you use slave labor, but you do it's good environmental. By... Yes, there's no offsetting issues like that, right? And I think there are certain things throughout the system that you have to acknowledge are just uh, unacceptable on a on a deeply understanding level. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if you're willing to then uh, aim to remove those, then you can start to reward the people that go above and beyond what the norm would be. So, okay, so socially responsible things like slave labor what are the other you know living like, wage okay. uh, whether or not you know has there been if it's in a processing plant right how are those workers treated uh any sort of labor issues you know um whether or not they're um you know breaking up different uh you know if workers are trying to unionize things like that anything that that prevents kind of uh you the the people who are working there from having a living wage okay and then um, do you factor in um, anything about, around like health, public health? So it's really interesting. I mean, correlation wise, mm -hmm. there is a huge correlation between our ratings and a more healthy product, um, both in terms of the fact that more processed ingredients uh, perform less well within our system. Um, so things like high, high fructose corn syrup, mm -hmm. um, 
they have a very heavy environmental impact, right? And so any product that's using a large amount of high fructose corn syrup will also not do well typically within a lot of different health scores, right? And so there's a correlation between those two that mean that we end up overlapping and, and pointing to the same thing. There's a rewarding of simple foods. And then if you're on the side of the health argument that's saying uh, avoiding certain pesticides, things like that, mm -hmm. because our ratings uh, avoid those and help people identify products that don't have those, they can be helpful for people who are doing that as part of their... Like public diet. health work. Yeah. I think, um, you know, a lot of people, first of all, don't understand the... And we were, I was just talking about this with my guests from last week um, about the connection between the environment, environmental sustainability and public health and how we don't really tend to think about those two things um, as being, uh, I would say like working in tandem, if you will, or the importance of, of working together on those. But one of the things is that we talked, that they talked about, my guest talked about was the, I mean, nutritionally foods that are grown in a certain way, like commodity crops, for instance, are, have a much less nutritional value, yep. let's say, than, um, than like your fresh fruits and vegetables grown by your local farmer. Yeah. So, okay. So it's basically, it's uh, like kind of baked in in a lot of ways. Yeah. And because we end up rewarding small local farmers, like the, okay. So people often ask us about like GMOs and the question for us is, yeah, like, we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're yeah. going to talk about, cause you've done a lot of research, but sorry, sorry. Well, ahead. I mean, the piece that I was just going to say is the, the, what we end up looking at is the, you know, the, with the largest GMO crops in the country, the main reason that they're an issue for how good is the type of pesticide that they then uh, basically ensure that you use in a high quantity, mm -hmm. right? Because they protect the crop from dying from that pesticide, so you can use a very harsh, harsh pesticide. And the, this has a similar kind of build-on effect to exactly what you're talking about, right? Where when you start to look at that crop, when it's a monoculture crop, and when it doesn't have kind of the normal robust systems, you end up being in a position where um, it's rewarded for cheapness, but if you replicate that system, our current system, I think the UN just said we have 52 uh, cycles left of, uh, of our current soil. I did not, I did not uh, catch that. Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't understand what that fully means, what that means is like we literally in 52 years, we'll no longer have topsoil to support our current agricultural methods. Yeah, um, good. Okay. So when people say this is how we're going to feed the world, uh, even though there's already a lot of holes in that argument, because you can grow more per acre with uh, a lot of different regenerative agricultural practices. Uh, the other one is that it's a non-sustainable practice. So it's a solution maybe for right now, but not for the future. Genetically modified organisms. Yeah crops okay all right well we're going to come back to that but so um will you might you fold in might you like kind of create a separate in like indicator for public health or like nutritional mm. profile moving forward so we work with with players who do that yeah the the challenge comes from i mean there's not a whole lot of agreement on a lot of issues in the dietetic community anyways which is probably a huge barrier well it's a barrier you end up like most you end up being in a position where, okay, let's say you wanted, you were in a grocery store, right? And you wanted to buy a chocolate bar, mm -hmm. right? Um, As I often do. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, you are looking at our ratings because you want to know which one's the most sustainable, right? So it's not using child labor, uh, which is an issue in the, in the chocolate industry, right? Um, and it's grown in an ecologically friendly way. If you fold into... If you fold in health information into that overall rating, everything ends up in the middle ground, 
okay. right? Because yeah. it gets a low score because it has all these different ingredients that are health-wise, right? But you're already in the chocolate aisle. You're already buying a chocolate. You're just trying to... So what we've tried to do is say, that's not our role. It's a really important role. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of players playing in that space. And we'll work with them on like, you know, uh, to like put both bits of information on something. But we don't want to mix them because if you add too much, it all ends up in the middle. Good point. It's like you've thought through this. <laughs> it's almost like you've thought through this Just extensively. For Just for 12 years. Okay, so you guys have been operational for 12 years. Yeah. Um, given the fact that you rate a million different products, I yep. would say... Um, yes, that, <laughs> that makes me, it wasn't, it wasn't all done in, in a, in a year. No. Okay. 12 years. So, um, it, like from the consumer facing standpoint, yeah. I, um, what did these labels look like or how am I going as a, as a user going to be able to look at a product and just say, I mean, is it as simple as yes, no, 95 out of a, a hundred? Like what are the, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, so I think the best way to interact with it is when we partner with a grocery store and they print our ratings right on the product. So we'll rate every product in the store. And then as you're walking through, there'll be a good, great, or best for the world mm -hmm. on different products. Um, and if they're anything that doesn't have our ratings is just below our standards. So we're highlighting all the best products throughout the store. Okay. Um, and that lets you, you know, if you're in the egg aisle, you don't have to know the difference between cage-free, free-range, free-roaming, certified UA, humane, and USDA organic. You can just see a simple scale that's scoring each one of those. And I think that's kind of the goal is to eliminate the confusion and allow people to kind of understand at a very top level which one's the best. But then when you're curious, when there's something that you're surprised by or you want to know what's behind the ratings, mm -hmm. we have a free app. You can download it, scan a barcode, and then you can see all the different attributes that went into why that product got the rating that it did. Okay. My first question my fir that popped in my head was, do you think that there's some part of it that's a disservice by making it so easy for people? Like, oh, it's just good, great, best, you know, that's all I need yeah. to know. I'm done. Good, great. <laughs> The bat was that right yeah. there? Okay. The great best. <laughs> See, it's not that See, simple. No, it's not. <laughs> Touche. You know, we we ran a lot of different trials in grocery stores when we were first starting. And, you know, when you survey people and you talk to people about these issues, you know, nationally, people really care, right? They talk about how much they care. But then when you put steps in front of people. They care, but they don't. They but they don't care to actually... They won't take the extra steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, we were, we were trying to figure out if it was like two or three steps, and it turned out it was zero, right? But <laughs> if you look at our best-rated products in, a, in your average grocery store, they see a 230% lift in sales. Wow. And that's coming cannibalized from the other ones, right? So that's... When you talk about do people care, the answer is yes, and they're willing to put their dollars where their mouth is, because yeah. on average, they're more expensive. I was going to say, do you control for price in that? No. So that's... I mean, that's definitely one of the things, like, you know... Some, in some categories, sustainable products definitely cost more. And yeah. in others, they can be the same or sometimes even cheaper. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at dairy products, sustainable practices right now um, cost more money. As they reach larger and larger scale, those price points should come down. Um, okay. So then, so does, so you said men, you work, have to work with the one store because if something doesn't have your rating on it, it's not like that product didn't pay for your services. It's just that they didn't. They didn't meet. achieve it. Yeah, they didn't like um, meet the cut. Yeah, make the cut. So, does your model work? I mean, is so you basically you have to work with one retailer 
at a, at a time or like, you know, it's like an all or nothing thing, right? Right. So like our largest partner is a group called Ajo Del Hayes. They have about 2000 stores in the US and 4000 in Europe. Um, and they have, uh, you know, they have a, a banner called Giant Landover, uh, 167 stores. And every one of the products or 98.5% of their products have been through our system. Okay. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and that process allows us to then help customers differentiate and identify which products they have that kind of meet those standards. But you, if you don't shop at that? If you don't shop, you can use our app, um, but you're going to have to take those extra steps that most people will. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. So what, and, and in the U.S., so that's a, that's a major retailer. Do you have any yeah. other kind of big partners? Yeah, so we, you know, we work with... We have 350 different data partners. Um, so a lot of those I would consider big partners, but maybe the more interesting ones for customers. Well, what does that mean really quickly, data partners? So is that how you're sourcing your information? Yeah, that's one of the ways. We also have researchers who, are, who do the on-the-ground work. Um, but then, yeah, 350 data partners would be anyone who's sending us data that we're using to interpret um, the different standards that these brands are, are living up to or not living up to. Okay. Um, and then we... We work with other groups um, like, you know, Danone. Um, they, you know, they have, they're the largest B Corp in the world. Mm -hmm. um, Benefit Corporation for those people who are uh, un unaware. Awesome way to go. They're amazing, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they're working with us on something called the, it's called the FIT tool, um, the Formulation Impact Tool. Yeah, <laughs> which allows them to basically look at every one of their products and understand all the impacts and then see how they can change their sourcing to improve that impact, right? And so it that's, maps is out. that specific for Danone products? Or? That's specific for them. Um, the, the largest retailer in the world has used us to help identify any sort of um, labor issues within their top 10 most purchased commodities, right? So we can map out and say, if you're sourcing fish from China, um, you know, there's five factories in northern China um, that uh, you can't source from because three of them are using slave labor mm -hmm. um, that's coming across from North Korea, across the bay. Um, and that fish gets mixed with these other two that are up north. Um, so you can't buy from any of those five without, without being sure that you're not potentially supporting that. And so, but you can buy from the ones in the south. And so when you get a player like that, even though uh, like the like the largest retailer in the world. Yes. Okay. When you get a player like that to mm -hmm. shift uh, their practices to actually sourcing from those lower ones, the ones in the north all of a sudden have a very good financial incentive to change that behavior. Okay. So people often say, you know, you're moving the needle. Right. And why are you willing? But some people, because we started off working with like co-ops and tiny operators, and and I love co-ops and and small operators, and I mean. If you look at our ratings, the way that they support a lot of these small farmers, it's a very, uh, it's an important part of what we do. And we maintain 25% of our products are always small local products rather than national products, um, which I bring that up because it costs a lot more money to research a small company than okay. to research a big one. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think it's really... It's important to be able to work with the big players, though, because when they make a small change, it has yes. such a big impact on so many lives. Huge, huge impact. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Okay, so basically, and and to sort of summarize, it seems like what you do is just a deep dive, and like you try and you offer like complete transparency throughout the entire supply chain. Yeah. Like start to finish, 
exactly every single thing that's going into a product that's being made. Yes, and when we don't know, because there's no such thing as perfect data, we say, here are the risks. And sometimes for us to give a positive rating, you need to prove that you don't hit those risks. So for a crop, here are the risks that you could be using. We need proof that you're not doing this to get our beneficial rating. Okay. So you also, so you work with retailers to evaluate all of the products that they sell in their store and you work with individual uh like producers or like big cpgs like yeah we've only actually just started working with the big cpgs and it was basically because we were like we have this huge data set um that could help them source better Mm -hmm. and we always kind of kept this barrier between us and them um, because we were rating them um and then we realized that actually it's kind of a disservice to the ones of them that come to us and say hey we actually we want to be better actors but this is incredibly complex and we need we need support right and so Mm -hmm. how do we start to work with those players to offer them this data what happens when you give them information they don't really want to hear i mean because i'm assuming like so also i mean so side side question follow-up question even though you haven't answered the first question um when working with the largest retail in the world i'm assuming they have a white label i would assume so yeah um would you rate that white label? So we we have not rated theirs. Okay. Um, what? But then how? But then how? If you're if you're rating everything in the store. So what we were looking at, we were looking at their labor issues, their potential labor issues that they could have within their supply chains. Okay. So for them, okay. ours isn't launched in the store. Okay. Okay. Got so it. So for that player, it was. It was about understanding the sourcing, sourcing and working on the back end. Got it. Okay. Okay. So that is, that's helpful. But then for other retailers, yeah. you will, you will we look at We do rate white label, right? And, and the grocery stores are the ones paying us to put our ratings in their store. Yeah. Um, so we do believe that customers should look at those ratings and, and question them. But it's, a, it's an algorithm, so we couldn't change it if we wanted to. Right. I was going to say, what happens when they get unfavorable results? And, yeah. But they're your client, right? Well, so you, and you get totally different res- responses from different people, right? So we recently had someone who, you know, it, the first result, when they saw their result for one of their products, they were furious. They were like, there's something wrong with your ratings. You know, like we have these, these we're sourcing these two decaf coffees the exact same way. You're giving this one a, a bad rating, this one or not. You you're know, lying. You're lying. <laughs> your, your system is wrong. Right? He, he f- threw a huge fuss. Um, he didn't realize that one was K-cups and one wasn't. And so it was the sourcing of the plastic right. that goes around the, the coffee that was causing that product to get a low rating. Um, and so eventually we actually helped them change how they were sourcing their K-cups. I'd rather no one actually have K-cups, but if you're going to have I mean, it's them. It's just a terrible cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> if for no other for reason. For no other reason. <laughs> Agreed. So, uh, but yeah, it ended up being a process that, that, you know, built trust. And that doesn't always happen. You know, there are some large corporations in this country that uh, argue with us on a regular basis that they should always do better. Uh, I think that's just, you know, part of the job. Right. Um, okay. So how, um, what, I don't know. See, this is what happens when my questions are out of order. <laughs> Do I have time to eat pizza? Does this you mean? Definitely, <laughs> you definitely can just take a big bite of pizza right now. Um, what, a, in terms of like where you are as a company, you said that you started in 2000 or 12 years ago. Yeah. How big are you now? 
In have terms you, of what? In terms of like staff, you know, how big, how much have you grown in the past 12 years? Because uh, it seems like if you're doing a million products, it seems like you would have a giant team in place to, to really. So it really yeah. looks at, it, there's a lot of different ways to look at our company, right? So we use 200 different food industry experts, for example, when we're looking at and mapping out the food system. You right? use by you. We use, but they are not our full-time employees. All right. So you have partnerships for you. Partnerships, data shares. Like if you go to a guy who's, you know, uh, super into palm oil and the impacts, right? Um, and you say to that person, uh, you know, look, you've got a PhD in the impacts of palm oil. Um, we want to have access to your understandings. We'll give you access to uh, all of this impact data that we have going on. Um, and then we want to be able to use your understandings to inform our ratings, right? And then we go to, uh, you know, a, you know, the next person and she tells us that, um, you know, a, a subset of what's happening in the rainforest in a very specific region. Um, you know, and so then we can map that in when it's being sourced from that region, that more refined understanding of what's happening um, with that palm oil. And so, and we then share those two understandings with each other. And so then we're building value for each of them and they're building value for us. And so we build this symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. It's really hard in the beginning when we had almost no data. Yeah. Um, we got a <laughs> grant. Like, we don't have as much to offer now. Yes, but one but day. But it's coming. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we got money from the stimulus fund. Um, really? Yeah, uh, that, so that was our big break. Um, yay government. Yay government, right? <laughs> big, um, big fan. Yeah. Uh, so 12 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Bigger fan 12 bigger, years ago yeah, than I am yeah. now. <laughs> Ooh, that's easy. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It was, it was pretty, uh, that allowed us to get our first 12 researchers and to start building a truly unique data set. Um, and then we had grown to about 26 people. Okay. So you partner with 200 experts and then a lot of, you mentioned, um, like nonprofits and, and I'm assuming like third party certifications, right? Yep. So how, what does that process look like? I mean, I mean, first of all, I love that there's collaboration. This is something that happens in the food space, not nearly enough. Yep. Um, people I think tend, and this is probably true in a lot of industries, but there's people want to be very proprietary with their like data or insights or, you know, even what they're advocating for. Um, but so yeah, I'm just like, how does that kind of work with working with these bigger, you know, these third party certifications? And is there any kind of like competition that they feel? You know, I feel like you learn a lot about the organization. Yeah. Uh, when you make like your first call to them to see uh, how willing they are to collaborate. Um, the great thing is that for a lot of them, we probably already have all the data that they have. Um, when you're talking about certifications. Yeah. Um, and so... But how, how is that, though? Well, I'll give you an... There, one of the larger certifications in the U.S., um, we reached out to them uh, at a certain point. We'd had a beneficial relationship talking about impacts, and we were like, hey, can we get a full product list of all the products that have achieved your, your rating? And they were like, oh, we, we don't have that. No way. Yeah, yeah, I kid you not. And then they were like, do you have one? And we were like, well, we have a a pretty good one, about 95% of the products in the U.S., whether or not they achieved yours. And they were like, can you share that with us? Seriously, though? <laughs> I kid you not. And that is now not the only time that's happened. Um, so there are some groups that we actually share. We wow. created and shared their list 
uh, with them. Um, Wow. (laughs) I mean, I guess, you know, like smaller nonprofits, maybe strapped, but you guys seem to have started from the same place also. Well, but we, we, I think the different missions, right? Like we're literally looking to track the food system. They were looking, a lot of these players were like, we need to approve whether or not this product has met these standards. And they didn't create like a database, you know, they had an Excel sheet that they started putting them on, you know, and then mm-hmm. that Excel sheet I mean, got that is a unruly. pretty powerful tool, I and will the, say. <laughs> yeah. But, but like not when you're mapping 95% of like a certain... No, I can remember year, it was year two when we first started breaking Excel and Excel could no longer power our, our, our database. And, wow. And it was a really painful process. And that was like, I think that was like 5,000 products. Really? Yeah. I have to say, I work um, with the. I work at a startup called yeah. Our Harvest, and um, it was founded by a former investment banker who, you know, is was really very very good at his job. And so it's and also our COO is a former investment banker, and our former COO is a former investment banker. <laughs> so I work with a lot of former investment bankers, and they are. Excel masters. So fibs. Yes. They're called fibs. Are they? I didn't Former know that. investor bankers. No, I just made it up. Oh, but I now like I'm going to call them fibs. We can rank a company <laughs> on that. Um, but yeah, they're like Excel masters. Yeah. And so um, I feel like the whole breaking an Excel spreadsheet would make them really pretty excited to hear about. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure they've done it, but like that seems not, not as much anymore. <laughs> yeah. You really, I mean, it's just designed for a certain scale. And then at a certain point, you either have to simplify the data or you need like, I mean, so one of the fun things that we do is we'll get like a file. Uh, oh, it's fun. Actually, is this fun? Yeah, no, this is going to get super nerdy <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, okay. why did you start talking about data? Analytics? I love it. No, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> so we'll get a file from like a grocery store. And then one of the things we do is we partner with um, like Nielsen, Right. And uh, for those that don't know, Nielsen basically tracks all the sales data that happens. And so then we can apply the sustainability data to the products that this company has to Nielsen. And then we can say, look, you know, you're not carrying any organic coconut water and organic coconut water is growing at, you know, five times the rate of regular coconut water. And so this is a big missed opportunity for you. So Mm -hmm. you should. This is one of the ways we justify grocery stores to improve their products that they're carrying. Um, And. Uh, but that process, you literally have to like rent servers to run the analytics that are combining the amount of sales data that you have with the amount of attributes. Wow. Because for like even even if you just think about just the attributes for food, the million UPCs and 127 attributes at its very simplest, right? That's 127 million attributes, right? So that's your that's your baseline, and then whenever you fold in any other factor, yeah, it gets multiplied. Yeah, and uh, growing. Yeah. By the way. So what, so you use, so what system do you use now? Oh, we, we have a proprietary, proprietary built system that runs huh. on Amazon cloud that can scale as we need demand. And yeah, look at you guys. Yeah. Is that how you, is that one of the reasons? I mean, because I, my understanding is that your company is, is considered to be a tech company, right. like food tech. And, and my, one of my questions too is going to be like, how do you define the food tech space? And, and do you yourself consider yourself to be, you know, a part of that? Well, I think like food companies think of us as tech and tech companies think of us as foodies, you know, so. Um, and cosmetics. Yeah, and cosmetics. <laughs> Just throw that in there. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a, we don't fit either perfectly, right? Like we're a startup, but we've been around for 12 years. I, I can't yeah. really, I can't really answer that, right? Yeah. We have VC funding, um, 
but we also have nonprofits that have invested in us, right? We have, so Humanity United, they're a nonprofit that focuses on eliminating a whole bunch of different, uh, everything from, from labor to, to trafficking issues, um, right? And so we, we don't fit a very basic mold, um, but the cool thing is like all of those groups are interested. Um, right. And I like that like a standard VC would look at our model and be like, this has a potential to be very big and have a lot of disruption, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a huge demand for it. Um, but at the same time, we get to just focus on the impact side that we care so much about. Is there a huge demand for it, for labeling? I mean, because one of the, qu- again. Uh, I mean, labeling, yes and no. There's a huge demand from it. The, the data set. Right. There's oh, a yeah. huge amount of interest from customers. Right. Like, I think the clearest way you know that there's interest is when the ratings go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. People that 230 percent increase mm-hmm. that's, in that's baby enormous. food. Yeah. It's over a thousand percent for the best rated. And that comes at the expense of the lower rated products. Right. And so when you see that kind of shift, you know that people are looking for a simple way to buy better. So. Okay, so I think it seems like the proprietary, just in and of itself, the way that you are managing and the system that you're using to manage and, and analyze data seems like pretty, pretty techy. In yeah. My, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. In my, in my opinion. Um, getting back to VC funds, yeah. um, you know, I think as a startup, I'm sure you probably get this question a lot. In addition to another question I'm going to ask you in a minute, but... Um, so prepare yourself for questions you've definitely been asked before. <laughs> but I, I want to know about like the v, like what it is like you know in terms of VC funding. Obviously, if you have a nonprofit investing with you versus a VC, those are very different stakeholders who are probably looking for different returns on their investment. Yep. Um, have you and and we know that like I would say historically VC funding is particularly challenging with the food space because it's just not the same, right? You can't scale it as fast as you can another product. Yep. Have you experienced that um, given the type of company you are? It's really interesting, you know. So first we went to impact investors. We actually had a harder time getting money from impact investors than from conventional VCs. They were almost more focused on our business model being fully developed. And we were like, look, the, this is especially back then, we were like, the business model isn't developed, right? The the demand for this information is clear, but we haven't figured out our go-to-market, or we haven't figured out all these different pieces. Um, and in, I think there's almost like an overcompensating for the fact that they were impact investors, so they wanted to make sure the business was solid. Yeah. You know, whereas <laughs> standard VCs in a certain way are like, we're taking a punt on the team and on the idea and on the concept. And we believe the execution is pretty good, but might need to be adjusted, right? And so there's more willingness from them to be like, yeah, this is the potential scale of this. I mean. You have to know how, right? I mean, for a VC, it's also a $600 billion industry, right? That food. has food. Yeah. And, you know, that's grocery, that's grocery alone, right? Like, the, for them, the idea, just because it hasn't been disrupted doesn't mean that it won't be, is their mindset, right? And mm-hmm. so they want to be a part of that. And so I think if you can talk to how you feel like you can help do that, um, they, they get excited. And I was surprised, right? Like, um, the amount of my VCs that, you know, I wouldn't have thought of are guys that like, you know, two years into them having invested in us, turns out that, you know, on like Friday nights, they go 
uh, to the corner and a guy pulls up in a truck and drops off an unhomogenized, unprocessed milk that they, you know, have been sourcing from Pennsylvania for the last 20 years, yeah. you know, like. Beasties, they're good guys too. <laughs> <laughs> they care about food too sometimes. Well, the ones that invest in us do. Yes, yes. Right? Yes. Uh, I'm not saying all do. There's definitely yeah. been some stares at us that, you know, might suggest otherwise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I've been pleasantly surprised by that interaction. So it hasn't, you haven't felt the kind of, some of the pressures that others have been, have to scale super quickly and make, make compromises that you might not, that you wouldn't want to. I mean, I, I have without question felt pressure to scale. I think, yeah. I think that is a part of what you're signing up for. With any investor? With any investor, almost. I mean, yeah. to diff- they'll have different levels of expectations. Um, and the food investors that we have are the ones in the room who are like, this is normal and this is part of the process when we're going through a slower period. Right. Um, but, you know, I think I brought on those investors because I have similar goals. Like, if we're going to change a lot of things that are going on in the food system that shouldn't be going on, we have to grow fast. If we grow slow, someone's going to come on, come along with a whole bunch of money, use a similar model as us, but without any good data, mm-hmm. right? And we'll, we'll fudge the same idea. And so, um, you know, I believe being first to market allows us to make sure that this is done right. What are some of the barriers for you as a company to scale quickly? I mean... Data and then getting, you know, the the grocery industry it doesn't look very different from how it looked 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? Like there are minor changes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a small percentage of shopping is done online for groceries, but the, it's a it's a tiny minority. Right. Um, I'm, we're trying to change that in my quote unquote day job. Yeah. Trying really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's what so many, I mean, you know, I think that's because that's one of those things that is really appealing. If you do change that, it's a $600 billion industry, right? Yep. Um, and so there's a, there's a way that when you go to a room of people who, have, who are making decisions and none of their decisions have reflected what's going on in the rest of the industries around them, um, it's hard to convince them that they should do something radically different. Um, because the average growth for a grocery store that's doing well is 1%. Yeah. Right. And so whenever they invest in something else that takes away from that 1% if it doesn't work out and they've literally spent the last like 150 years, whenever one company got too outrageous, they tried too many things, they end up getting sold because they go, you know, the margins are small, but the dollars are high. So if you're going 5% down in a grocery store, Mm -hmm. you're losing like you know, like $2 million per store location, yeah, right? And so then they have to sell that store. And so that's how the places that got the biggest became, is they were super conservative about spending money. They weathered all the storms. When their competitor wasn't doing well, they bought them. And then they, and so, you know, there's a culture there of being smart and safe and not being too risky. And that's at odds with what's going on in a lot of the market right now. And so trying to convince them that they should do something that's outside of the norm is hard. So it's basically like the sales process is, would you say your, your biggest challenge? Well, I would say it's my biggest challenge because As I directly you. manage those teams. <laughs> uh, I, if you talk to our director of research, he would be like, 
That's, no way. Not that. <laughs> That's not the challenge. Yes. Um, so it definitely, you know, our CTO would have something to say about it too. Right. It depends who <laughs> like you're it's talking to. It's all really to. hard. Yeah. yeah. There isn't a part of our business. But in terms of like growth. Easy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't, our database is robust enough to have ratings for 70% of grocery stores in the country. And we do not have that. Right. Yeah. So um, it is about getting that implementation. Well, what, what are the costs associated? Like not in terms of, I mean, how, essentially I'm asking like, how do you make money as a company? So we sell the, we sell the ratings to the grocery stores. So they license the ability to use them in store. Okay. All right. So, um, got it. <laughs> what, um, all right. Well, we talked about your biggest, your biggest challenge. So I said that we are going, I was going to ask this question that I'm sure you've gotten a hundred times, but I would be remiss if I didn't. We, some might say, are at, we're at label overload. Yeah. Right? I mean, there are a thousand different claims and it's just getting more absurd. Like, what is, like this milk is, I don't know, non-GMO non, or non something. Non-GMO water is my favorite. Yes. Okay. That's an even better one. Non-GMO water. Like, yeah. what the, you know, <laughs> vegetarian water. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you never, they, they're endless. Yeah. And um, you also see packages with, yes, like they have no business having that kind of label because obviously yeah. a, obviously a tomato is gluten-free. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that you add to the noise or are you working to really? I mean, it's one of the issues that we try and, and repair, right? We call it the NASCAR effect, right? Like if a product wanted to put everything uh, that they achieved onto their packaging, it would literally look like a NASCAR. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's where I, you know, when I was talking about the eggs and it's cage free, free range, free roaming, certified, humane, USDA organic, right? You don't want that kind of complexity within a space that small, let alone when you start looking at the entire food system. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, just put it on a scale, right? This yeah. is the sustainability impact and just simplify that process. Um, and so, and that's why we work with the grocery stores rather than the producers to put it on pack, mm -hmm. right? Because putting it on pack, yeah, the best producers would probably all put it on their pack, but you wouldn't understand how that compared to the product next to it. It would just be one more label that was on a package. Right. Who would pay for that? Would the producer pay for that or the would the If it retailer? was going to be on pack, yeah. the producer would pay for it. But in the way we're using it, the retailers pay because then it's on every price tag right okay. next to the price. That yeah. makes it easy. And would the claims be, the claims would be the same if you were um, at, if you were a retailer versus a, like a CPG. Yeah. Okay. So you can, you can see your rating on a package at a different grocery store if they were not. Yeah. participating. Um, how do you wade through? So you use other claims, yeah. right? Um, so how do you yourself wade through the superfluous oh and the God. just like misleading or false or yeah. false sometimes like, you know, and some mean different things in different countries. Like literally they can have the same label on the pack, but if the product is produced in a different country, the standards are different, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. the complexities, the complexities of those systems is really, really uh, unfortunate. And one of the things we do is it's essentially reviewing all of those and looking at how trustworthy their data is. Um, because, you know, gathering 350 data sources is great, but the ones that are useless, like, I'll give you, there's 450 labels. <laughs> Total, like in the labeling universe? In the labeling, U.S. labeling universe, there's 450 that are, that are recognized. We only use 350 different data sources, which shows you that at least, at a very minimum, there's 100 that we consider absolutely useless. 
<laughs> You're like, nope. Nope. This, this <laughs> What's one of them? No- <laughs> is vegetarian fed one of them for like chickens? Because I feel like that's one that I read. I'm like, I don't. That's know. a good question. I don't. I will now ask our research department about vegetarian fed. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that is interesting, right, is that, you know, our team ends up specializing with like the number of products, the number of ratings, the number of data sources. I don't know them all. Right. Like yeah. people often will like I'll be in a grocery store. They'll be like, what does this product get? And I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> we can get out the app. <laughs> you know, you're like, we have an app for that. We have an app for that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot around water usage that are just pure garbage that are just, you know, that are just really unfortunately used. There's a lot where uh there's a huge category of labels that are just pay to play. Yeah. So you pay something and then you sign off that you've adhered to a subset of standards. So you're like, we promise. Yeah. Wink, wink. Exactly. We've definitely done this. Exactly. And that, so yeah. like all of those are just. Yeah. Frustrating. Frustrating. Uh, OK, we have to take a really quick commercial break um, to hear a word from our sponsors and let you eat some pizza. Um, but uh, stay tuned for more. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, and we're back um, on Eating Matters, where today I'm joined in the studio by Alex Gillette, CEO and co-founder of How Good. Um, so now I want to, how's, <laughs> should I just ask you 12 questions right now while you're finished eating? Okay, I'll give Definitely. you a minute. I'll just, <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of the research that you guys have done. I mean, do you make a lot of your research public? Nod if yes. <laughs> so the the end results okay. we make public, right? Yeah. So like what attributes they get, basically you can scan with the app. And then we give deeper dives as a company or people reach out and ask us for information, we share it. Like in terms of are GMOs good? Which is an impossible, it's a very frustrating question, I think, because what does good mean? Exactly. But you have some of that information. 
Yeah, a lot of a lot of those questions we end up looking at like what is the individual impact of each step along the way, um, because the world is very rarely as black and white as we think it is. Indeed. Right, and so uh, the question often that is the most interesting is what is bad about a specific GMO crop and what is good about a specific GMO crop, mm -hmm. and how do those two things interact with each other, and what did they uh, do to our food system, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, the monocultural growing of corn, uh, of GMO corn, has massive, massive environmental impacts, right? And mm -hmm. so those end up getting represented in our system. Um, but it's not specifically to do with the GMO part, it's to do with glyphosate. Aha, which leads me to my next question, because on your blog, you have an article that I was super interested in, and um, it is titled, Glyphosate is not the problem. Well, I don't know if it's titled that, but that's like at least a subheader. Yeah. That's the main point. Yeah. Care to explain? Because uh, I just did a, a really long episode with... Um, with Carrie Gillum, who wrote Whitewash and is like the, an expert on, I would say, glyphosate and our food system. And I feel like she would, she might disagree. You know what I think you should do? <laughs> Have you guys both on? Yeah. No, not me. We should, we should bring on the researcher. Yes. Uh, who, who wrote that piece and yeah. her on and they should talk about it because that's one of the things that we love to do is actually explore the complexities of each one of those pieces. Yeah. Right. And say, what are the impacts and how are they being represented? Yeah. Okay, so do you care to like give us a little sneak preview, sneak peek on why glyphosate is not the problem? Because it is, it's a big problem. <laughs> I think, I, so my understanding would be that there are, that it is, what we often like to do is say, this is the sole and only cause of an issue, right? And right. if we fix this, then we'll be fine. The problem is if we get rid of glyphosates, but we maintain monocultural growing conditions and we use some other highly invasive pesticide. Still a problem. We're still gonna have largely the same yeah. problem, right? And so is the issue the growing conditions or is the issue the pesticide, right? I, it's a bit of like cause or effect, right? Are we treating the symptom or are we, right? Like I don't think Ethan's article is not saying, hey, let's go spray glyphosate on everything, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Uh, and that's your head, your head of research? Yeah. Uh, he's our EVP of research. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, so that was not his intent? Uh, I don't believe so, but you know, he wasn't as paid soon by as we get off, I'm going to go <laughs> read that blog and, and make sure that I, uh, I agree with it. No, I think that is definitely, you know, that's the, I mean, he says it's a, like a red herring and I, and I do think that like you said, it's how you kind of look at these issues. And certainly, if we were to wake up tomorrow and get rid of glyphosate, that does not get rid of all of our problems yeah. at all. It might give people, it might reduce our incident rates of um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but... Right, but not if we replace it with a worse one. Yeah, Which that's we have true. a very strong tradition of doing, right? <laughs> like, true. it didn't come out of nowhere. We used a less worse one before this, and yeah. then we moved to this. Yeah, well, and this one is supposed to be safe enough to drink. It was well, one of the original marketing claims. Yeah, yeah. It's weird, though. You never see People the Monsanto CEO drinking it. I know. You know, they're not just like... <laughs> glyphosating it down a little shot of, <laughs> every morning yeah, every like morning. apple cider vinegar exactly it just cleans out the system you know <laughs> gets rid of any bugs growing in there 
Um, yes. Okay. So what about in, in your position, like, uh, you know, you've been, done a lot of research. Have there, has there been any kind of issue or commonly held belief that you were surprised by the outcome? In, when you really did a deep dive, you were like, either this is way more harmful than I thought, something that you kind of thought was totally benign, um, or something that really, yeah, I mean, you just, you just didn't, you just... I mean, I think the labor side of things it was a much larger issue than I thought and mm-hmm. impacted, me, on a personal level, impacted me a lot more than, you know, I, I got into this for the eco-environmental side. Like, that was my, the passion that, that I brought um, was focused on those issues. And I think I've been really surprised how much I end up getting emotionally motivated by what I'm hearing is happening to people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, when I think about like things that have shocked me are things like, you know, like not from concentrate mm-hmm. can actually mean that it's fully dehydrated, like that it's been turned into a powder. It just means that yeah. it wasn't partially dehydrated. Right. Right. So yeah. like, you know, a Tropicana that says not from concentrate could actually, and this happens with a lot of, uh, a lot of orange juice it's actually fully dehydrated. It turns turned into a powder. It's sitting in a warehouse. They pour water over it. Then it has no flavor uh, because of the dehydration process. So then they add flavor packets, but they only use ones that have the same uh, molecular compounds that are found in an orange. So they don't have to list them on the label. Wow. Uh, and so they're they're actually using fragrances. So these uh, you in different parts of the country, even though it's from the same orange grove, the orange juice tastes different because they've gone and and tested what people think orange juice should taste like. Uh, and so you're drinking something that you're thinking of as fresh that has been turned into a powder. Its proteins have all been broken down. Uh, it's then rehydrated, reflavored, re-sugared, uh, and delivered to you. And you're like, ah, I can taste the pulp. It must be real. <laughs> just blew my mind. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I should think of something a little bit more articulate, but I... I mean, I don't drink, drink Tropicana. I don't really drink orange juice. Yeah. Me now, neither anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When my, like my wife really likes, it for she really likes for orange me. juice. So she'll be in a restaurant. She'll be, you know, we'll be like getting breakfast. She'll be yeah. like, do you have orange juice? And is it freshly squeezed? And they'll be like, yeah. And she'll be like, I mean, like freshly squeezed, not it says that on the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Like, did you do it yourself? <laughs> did you do it yourself? Yeah, show me the oranges. Bring the oranges. Yes. <laughs> no, no, wow. she's not that difficult. It's probably hmm, me. I would be. I 100% am. <laughs> what about something that you, that is like, and I feel like I've asked you about this before, and maybe you're in the process of doing some research, but it, like packaging, packaging is a um, an issue that comes up for us as a company a lot in terms of, you know, how your goods get to you, what, what you know, how much plastic are you using? And I'm wondering if that is something in your research, maybe not plastic specifically, but like if there was something that we think as a, as a, as a society is, you know, very, very bad, but really it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about plastic is like, yes, it is bad, but it's two to 8% of the impact of your average product that's on shelf. Right. Wow. Right. Two to 8%. Two to 8% for a food product on Of an shelf. impact. Yeah. Got so it. if you're looking at the overall impact and you're trying to to look at what that is, and there there's nuance here where you start to look at how long it takes to break down and how you change those variables and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is 
a space that is very well represented right now. Like every major CPG that you talk to, the very first thing that they say to you is, we're working on packaging. Yeah. Right. So when we go to CPGs, we're not like, are you working on packaging? We're like, what are you doing about your labor? And they're yeah. like, oh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> right. Like, and so those one are the, thing at a time. Yeah. And so those are the <laughs> issues we focus on. We're like, we're, you know, we're labor, we're your, your CO2, we're, you know, those sorts of things that have less representation in the market. Okay. Because, I mean, and also, I guess my question is, I mean, this using packaging as an example, how do you... Is this like kind of baked into the algorithm in terms of, all right, you're going to look at a, like, um, I don't know, you're trying to sell like five ounces of liquid um, or uh, like five ounces of, of a product. Yeah. Like what would the impact be of if that product was in like a Tetra pack versus glass versus plastic versus a compostable? Yeah. So yeah, like how do, you how do you make a decision? How do you rank those? Well, so each one of those has a different type of impact. So what you do is you score the overall impact, right? So the impact for glass has to do with the weight, the imp whether or not it's going to be recycled. Mm -hmm. You know, is it a direct loop style system or is it a going to a, a processing center and being broken down and then reformed, right? So you're building in all of those sorts of things and what the averages are for that one individual package, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're looking at that versus the competition. And so, you know, there, none of those are perfect solutions, right? So for each of them, you're saying, here are the issues and how do those weigh against each other? Is there, uh, there tends to be nuance where you could interpret things slightly differently. Mm -hmm. I think that's always the case. But what we like to say is like, that's kind of debating like fine wines at that point, right? Like once you start to be like, is this a, you know, does this a 97.5 or a 98% more beneficial, mm -hmm. right? It, it doesn't really matter. What you're really looking for is, you know, the difference between when someone is using, uh, you know, some sort of terrible plastic bottle that's a one use and non-recyclable uh, versus someone who is, uh, you know, using a cardboard box, right? That's, right. That's fully recyclable. Yeah. Um, and the, the nuance of the system it's not that those small changes don't matter. I think for an individual company, they should be highly focused on, right? And making those changes as a company, when you're looking at that, if you can say, okay, this is 5% of our impact and we can cut that 5% in half. So it's gonna become 2.5% of our impact. That's awesome, right? Like shaving off two and a half percent of your overall impact is amazing, mm -hmm. but it just doesn't end up being the thing that we need to focus on because of the representation in the market for it. Right. What are, so in looking to the future, what are some, um, do you have any, like in terms of your ex expansion plans basically? So you're doing more with cosmetics. Yep. Have you conquered the food system? Food system's ours, guys. Done. It's ours, it's ours. <laughs> Don't tell any of the food players, but yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that's, you know, there's, so there's 33,000 ingredients in our database that are all like fully mapped and rated. Oh. Um, and Right, those are the ones where like you take those and each one of them has a different impact for different practices and different regions and all of that. Um, and there's a huge overlap with cosmetics. But then we started adding in cleaning supplies for some of our grocery partners who wanted to actually have an understanding of their cleaning supplies impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and so once we started adding cleaning supplies, we realized that between cleaning supplies and food, we had cosmetics also covered in terms of their impacts. Um, and so the... You're like... Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Fell right into that one. Yes, yes. Um, 
And I, so what, what we've done now is we wanted to make something really easy that was direct to consumers for the uh, first. It's it's actually it's called the safety scanner, the How Good Safety Scanner. It's a Chrome extension. Um, so you can go and you can download the Chrome extension. And then when you're shopping and basically there's a product that uh, is for anything for babies right now, but soon it'll also be for all of cosmetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but the database is open for baby right now. Anything that you buy in baby, if it has ingredients that are uh, deemed questionable. So, you know, whether they're on the 2000 ingredients that are banned by the by the EU um, or um, or their ingredients that are known carcinogens or things like that. Um, you basically get a warning letting you know what that is, and then uh, you can click on it to show you alternatives. Um, so it just gives you a little insight into, I think one of the weird things about both the cosmetics and the baby space is just that a huge amount of it is a black box, right? And a huge amount of ingredients have cinnamon names that are just so obscure that no one really knows what they are unless you run them through a database that's saying, oh, this actually just means this, which is actually just a byproduct of, you know, bleach, which right. is in a huge percentage of cosmetics, it turns out. Huh. Don't buy bleachy cosmetics. That's my <laughs> advice. <laughs> how are we supposed to know? Oh, you download the <laughs> How Good Chrome <laughs> extension. Thanks for that. Yeah, that you're, good, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a softball there yeah. or a, a log or whatever. Um, <laughs> No, but I'm like, now I got to really, really rethink um, all of my cosmetics, but it's a good thing I don't really wear a lot of those. So <laughs> I, I do radio, yeah. not TV, <laughs> not a big issue for me. Um, okay. So, wow. So Chrome, big partnership. Congratulations. Thanks. That's pretty exciting. Yep. Um, any product categories that you, you are like, not, not our bandwidth? You know, we're being asked a lot to do... Uh, dog food and pet food right now. Yes. Yeah. That would be a really good idea. It's really, I mean, it's interesting. So we have all the impacts mapped out because it's food, right? Yeah. It's largely byproducts of food. The The issue is that the traceability is really low and the data accuracy for where it's coming from is really low. Huh. So that's what we, you know, when you said, what's the hard problem? So right yeah. now our researchers would be saying, well, one of the hard problems yeah. uh, is finding accuracy within that data. And so whether it's blockchain or a number of different solutions, we're basically starting to explore how um, how we start to be able to accurately say, this is what's in this product and this is therefore how it rates. So you, you prefer see uh, a world where you could really reap the benefits of blockchain? Would that be in any way because they're offering total transparency in conflict with what you do? I don't see it as in conflict. I think I think what we do is also be able to interpret the data, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, most suppliers know where their products are coming from. They don't know what that means. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And okay. so you need to be able, when we say mapping the food system, the biggest thing is like, what happens when you do it in these different situations? Yeah. Right. Um, last question. Where can, okay, so your app is wherever, to download the app, wherever. All the places. All of the places. Yeah. And um, what if we want to read more about your work? Um, you can go to howgood.com, you know, as simple as that, as simple as that. Uh, (laughs) and yeah, and reach out. We love the research team, especially loves getting challenging questions. So, you know, send them lots. I love that. (laughs) That is so great. All right, Alex, we have to leave that here, leave that here. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
Um, okay, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, the one and only Jeet Paul. Also, huge thanks to our show intern, Devani Latino. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of our show are available on the HRN website or as a podcast, wherever you find them. If you haven't done so already, subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. thanks for listening